Hello, listeners around the world. Welcome to Salon Radio, broadcasted in New York City at Funkadelic Studios. This is Heidi Russell, founder of International Women Artists Salon, the producer of this Salon Radio series, and it is my distinct pleasure to be the host today. And we have a great show. It's a little extra long today, so uh, we hope that you will enjoy this extra time to be with two amazing women creatives that are doing fantastic work out there. And uh, we'll tell you a little bit more about them as we move through the show. But first, as always, uh, we'd like to bring to you our World Bulletin, what is happening for women artists around the world. And today, Maureen Bantrice, our editor-in-chief of our Salon Bulletins and World Bulletins, has uh, written today's bulletins. So uh, here we go with the World Bulletin. Take it away, Maureen. Hello, Salonistas. This is Maureen Bantrice bringing you the World Bulletin. First up, we have the Whitney Museum of American Art. It's fantastic presentation of women's creative work currently on display, along with the curators and assistant curators. Five are solo exhibitions of these talented women, Lorna Mills with her Caught in Moment through October 2nd, Willa Nazatir, emerging artist through October 1, Addie Wegenacht with Believe Me, Bunny Rogers, Brig und Ladder Mixed Media Animation through October 9th, and Sybil Kempson, 12 Shouts to the Ten Forgotten Heavens, Every Solstice and Equinox through 2018. Next one is September 22nd, 2017. There are more women in this exhibit as well, including an incomplete history of protest with online exhibition image of Annette Lemieux's Black Mass from 1991. An incomplete history of protest looks at how artists from the 1940s to the present have confronted the political and social issues of their day. Assistant curators are Jenny Goldstein and Rahiko Hockley. More at Whitney.org. And then IWAS partner organization, The Anthropologist, has recently been in the news. Most recently, they had a production back in July called The Anthropologist Saved the World. The Anthropologists are a company of artists dedicated to the creation of investigative, socially relevant, and engaging theatrical work using physical theater and contemporary dance to devise organic ensemble-based work. So back in July, their production of The Anthropologist Saved the World brought three plays together, fusing explosive anecdotes, absurd interludes, and invigorating movement. One of them was called The Lecture, about a smoker's cessation group resurrecting Aldous Huxley. We had The Blackout, where doomsday preppers take on the biggest blackout in New York history, and The Robot, imagining a not-so-distant future where a child finds himself in a country overrun by robots where humans are merely accessories in the New World Order. And most recently, for the anthropologists, with the support of the Artist Co-op, they organized an emergency artist response session to the events in Charlottesville. That was uh, August 17th. They and IWAS condemned these vile and hateful acts, and they felt it necessary to provide an open and productive space for communities to come together and process the events. They had a discussion open to people of every race, creed, color. Uh, They had a brainstorming session, writing about their reactions and specific examples of works, artists, artistic works that educate 
having discussion based on those things, sharing artistic responses, brainstorming and planning projects, and uh, working toward making those projects happen. And lastly, we find that Wonder Woman is now the largest grossing superhero movie ever at $800 million in box office sales worldwide. And the great thing is, it just came out on digital August 29th and will be coming out on Blu-ray September 19th. Congratulations to actress Gal Gadot and director Patty Jenkins. And that'll wrap it up for our World Bulletin. Thank you so much, Maureen. As you can hear, there is incredible work being done by women creatives in all disciplines around the world, and this is just a little sampling of what's happening. So we would love to hear from you. Let us know what's happening for the women's uh, artistry in your neck of the woods, in your area of the world. Please email us at womenartsalon at gmail.com to let us know, and uh, we'll collaborate and, and get those messages out to the rest of the world through Salon Radio and all of our other social media. You can find us on International Women Artists Salon fan page on Facebook, on Twitter at Women Art Salon, on Instagram at Women Art Salon, and stay tuned for uh, a new website that's that's coming out. But in the meantime, you can also find out more about International Women Artists Salon on our blog spot, which is womenartsalon.blogspot.com. So thank you for being a supporter of women's artistry out there by listening to Salon Radio. And if you're new, we hope that you will become engaged with us in any way. Join us, partner with us, sponsor us, and uh, give us ideas of how we can collaborate in all parts of the world. So uh, it is also my distinct pleasure to be able to present our first guest today. And uh, I've worked with uh, an amazing public relations uh, professional, Esther Kashkin, and she has been uh, amazing bringing great women creatives to International Women Artists Salon. So thank you, Esther. And our first guest today uh, comes from the opera world, and uh, I'm going to introduce her and her project that she has going on, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, those projects and uh, the inspiration that has uh, led to these great projects and uh, activity. So welcome to Andrea Del Judice. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Heidi. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, it's um, our great uh, pleasure and honor. And uh, you're calling in from Chicago. Is that correct? I am indeed, yes. Temporarily, I'm from New York City, but I'm here visiting and setting up my daughter at college. Fantastic, who uh, is a... A woman creative in her own right, I believe, so we look forward to hopefully getting her on Salon Radio in the future. And Indeed. We, and we wish her the best. So Andrea Andrea is director of La Traviata and founder of uh, founder and artistic director of New York Opera Collaborative. And we're going to talk most extensively today about her current project, directing uh, a new a version of La Traviata and Giuseppe Verdi's operatic masterpiece, La Traviata, based on Alexander Dumas Villa's popular play, has uh, remained one of the most popular operas of the standard repertory, both before and after Richard Gere took Julia Roberts to the opera in Pretty Woman, another story about a streetwalker with a heart of gold. In Hollywood, La Traviata was famously filmed by the great Italian director Franco Zeffirelli, with a starry cast led by 
Placido Domingo as Alfredo and Teresa Stratas as Violetta. Fully costumed and staged, La Traviata will be directed by Andrea with a live orchestra conducted by Jason Tram, starring Susan Burgess and Ashley Bell as Violetta, and Christopher Nelson as Alfredo, Jonathan Scott as Germont, and lighting design by Greg Solomon, and set design by Fred Sorrentino. And uh, I apologize ahead of time that uh, my Italian is very rustic, and uh, <laughs> I'm sure uh, Andrea will help uh, correct any of my pronunciations through the show. So um, I think the only one we're going to start with, Heidi, is Violetta. She's um, she's the, of course, my my main character. And in in the Italian language, the letter I is pronounced E, so Violetta is how that's pronounced. <laughs> Violetta. There we go. Beautiful. Thank you. And uh, we're actually going to hear Ashley Bell as Violetta uh, in some of um, uh, recordings that we will uh, be listening to during this feature as well. And I want to mention a little bit about Andrea first before we get into more detail about uh, her projects and her work. Andrea is a renowned international operatic soprano and New York City-based voice teacher. She is founder and artistic director of New York Opera Collaborative, artistic director of the International Vocal Arts Festival in Narni, Italy, vocal director at the Neighborhood Playhouse of the Theater in New York City, and highly sought after private studio um, in New York City. And uh, she also was recently appointed to the advisory board of Del Arte Opera Ensemble of New York City, whose members include New York City agents, directors, conductors from Chicago Lyric Opera, Metropolitan Opera, West Edge Opera, Yale University, and renowned singers, and is currently serving as founder and artistic director, as I mentioned, of the New York Opera Collaborative, which we're going to hear a little bit more about and uh, so, Andrea, um, we always like to ask our guests first uh, a little bit, tell us a little bit about how you found your creative voice initially and uh, how it's developed over time. Thank you. Well, I, I have been in the international operatic world as a soprano, as a performer for, for many years, and had been asked on many occasions to direct they always sort of shied away from direction, having been used to being on stage and interpreting a role in my own way amongst the concept of a director that I was working with. And recently, I was approached by um, Jason Tram, the conductor of our production, as, a po- as possibly directing La Traviata. And as I thought about it, I, I really feel that at this point in my life and in my career, I've learned so much as a director and a human being that I thought I had, I had something to offer in telling the story of La Traviata from Violetta's eyes, from her experience um, in society, what it means to to attempt your life in 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 a city like New York City, which is where my production is set, and equally as importantly, in in a time where we are living amongst the presidency, which has brought back some very, very difficult times for women. Um, I think I described it as, you know, a return to the world as Barbie. And, and that's, that's just not um, where I wanted to come from in terms of what I wanted to bring to La Traviata. So my hope is that through my 
sort of my inspiration for this production came very much from what's going on societally right now. And as I said, with um, with a with a president that is not uh, pro-feminism, as we can certainly say. So I'm hopeful that as we talk about the production today, I can bring that around to to something that would touch many of us as women and 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 the importance of our voices being heard. Absolutely, uh, Andrea. And we will definitely uh, delve into that. And you mentioned a little bit about uh, your your past career as a singer as well. Um, can you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about uh, you know you know how you determined that you wanted to be an opera singer and uh, maybe uh, give us a little inspiration for those budding uh, singers out there who are <laughs> considering opera and uh, and tell us a little bit who you've performed with. Absolutely. Um, I actually started as a pianist uh, through high school and started my college uh, my college years as a pianist and then was dared to audition for an opera, which was hilarious wow. because mm. I'd never done anything like it. I'd always sung in choirs and actually I did a lot of um, dinner theater type things, but I'd never sung opera. So I auditioned in college and lo and behold, and surprisingly to me, I got the lead role in Hansel and Gretel as Hansel. So I I tried my my hand at, at opera and I loved it. I just loved being on stage and as opposed to being locked in a practice room practicing eight hours a day. And I changed my major and from there I just became more and more passionate about about being on stage and this tremendously passionate and, and inspirational music that these these composers, and particularly Italian composers, my my career has been based in most of the Puccini and Verdi operas. Uh, I sing most of the heroines, Madame Butterfly, Mimi La Boheme, um, Manuel Lescaut. I've done just about all of the, the Verdi and the Puccini. So uh, I've played many of the women who, are, who either die of consumption or are murdered or in many cases the stories where the, the woman is depicted as the victim. Mm. And so it's an interesting turn of events for me that I've chosen an opera where the lead character generally dies of consumption. Consumption seems to be a big disease in opera. <laughs> I don't know why, but that's what it's called. So um, so I, I, I've taken a different turn. I mean, I, I've i sung uh, major operas with um, Johann Botha. I've sung Otello with Placido Domingo. I won the Pavarotti competition. I've sung with many, many international um, singers. I spent four years in Bonn at the Opera der Stadt Bonn with Giancarlo Delmonico, the famous son of uh, Mario Delmonico. So I've I've had a very prolific career and met many people and lived in many countries. So I, I I'm very excited to to bring a little bit more of an updated um, an updated approach to to this project and. Uh, I work with young singers, mainly the cast that I'm working with right now. They're all, they're varying ages, but generally from, I'd say, like 25 to 35. So I've got a very young cast and varying different levels. My baritone, Jonathan Scott, is currently at the Metropolitan Opera. My sopranos, Ashley Bell and Suzanne Burgess, um, they're they're performing in many, many different venues and, and regional companies as well. So everyone's at slightly a different level, which is part of the pleasure of of bringing everyone together creatively um, is, is really watching them grow at the level that they're at. Of course, they're, they're all auditioned and chosen from many, many different um, singers who had auditioned. And we're, we're extremely, extremely happy with, with the cast that we've assembled. 
fantastic. Well, you do indeed have a, a, a illustrious and and prolific career, and congratulations on all that Thank you've you. accomplished today. And we're certainly looking forward to uh, the next stages as you as uh, directing and getting um, the voices of the women in opera uh, to be heard in a different light. And uh, uh, brava for uh, taking that step. And um, I, I just can't wait to hear more and literally hear more, not <laughs> just in this, this uh, interview, <laughs> but in the future and following your, your career and your um, productions. And I just wanted to um, uh, touch a little bit more on your work as a vocal coach. You just mentioned a little bit uh, about that. But mm-hmm. as, as I mentioned, several other listeners out there might be you know, currently taking voice lessons and whatnot. Uh, can you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about uh, your work as a vocal coach? Absolutely. Um, I'm actually a voice teacher, and there is a um, there is a, a difference between oh, the two. Okay. A vocal coach is generally someone who is um, a, a pianist, and normally coaching both linguistically and musically the actual content of of the opera. It's not that I couldn't do that, but my work and my studio is based in my work as a vocal technician. Uh, I specifically teach physio- um, physiological vocal technique, which is derivative of the Italian bel canto school in which I studied myself. So my students will come in and bring a role or an aria or something they're working on, and we're working on the actual sound production, the physical requirements of the body and the voice in terms of, you know, developing it. This is a opera singers, I think, more than anyone else spend. So, so many years of their training. Uh, I know that uh, Pavarotti studied with the same voice teacher for over 35 years. Um, same with Barrera Freni and some of the, the, the big singers, Beverly Sills. They found a, a vocal technician that they trusted, that understood their voice. And so they worked with that teacher once a week for their, the, the extent of their careers. So that's a little bit different, as I say. However, equally as important to have both a vocal technician and a vocal coach to become a well-rounded singer and to learn expressively and technically exactly what that composer intended. I always say that opera is sort of the necessity to be the triple threat. You have to be a technically proficient singer at your languages and as well as an actor. So it, it combines a lot of the, uh, the mediums of, of a heart form. Indeed, it does, and uh, uh, thank you for the explanation of um, sure. the difference between uh, the vocal coach and vocal technician and, and how important they both play a role in developing one's career uh, as an opera singer. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about, um, uh, first, uh, about your other work with the Narnia Festival? Yes, I I, um, I have... I lived in Italy for seven years, and my daughter was actually born in Rome while I was singing over there. And upon returning to the States, I had some some uh, productions that I was doing here, and I ended up moving to New York City, and actually kind of at the same time my daughter entered, um, entered Juilliard. She did her undergraduate work at Juilliard. And when I arrived, I met a wonderful, wonderful pianist by the name of Cristiana Pegoraro, an Italian woman from Narni, Italy. And she was doing a series of concerts in New York City. And at the time, I was the head of the resident artist program for De Capo Opera Theater with Michael Capasso. Michael Capasso has since renovated and is now the executive director of the New York City Opera. So I've, I've worked with him for a number of years. He introduced me to Cristiana. 
and we immediately felt this tremendous energy together. And she had already had the Narnia Festival up and running as an instrumental program. But when I suggested to her, let's let's build an operatic program, she said that would be fantastic. So we spent this is we just finished our fourth fourth year, fourth or fifth, I think it's the fourth year. Um, with, with productions of Johnny Skiki and Suor Angelica this past summer with a wonderful director, uh, Maria Rosario Maggio, who's a very, very well-known actress from Italy, and she's, she's, she works quite often with Woody Allen, and she also brought a tremendous women's perspective to, to particularly the Suor Angelica production and the importance that all, that all went, women inside and internally have this sense of mother, which brings such a strength to society and it, and really it was it was it was breathtaking i mean i've i've sung for angelica myself and after like every day of rehearsals i was still crying at rehearsals so oh, wow. that's how i knew it was really it really she really hit the mark so it not me is uh is a four-week festival in july every year and we have multiple mediums going on there. We have, of course, the, the opera program and the full-scale opera with orchestra, costumes, everything. We have flamenco. We have tango. We have symphonic concerts. We do a mass in both the Narni Cathedral and the Orvieto Cathedral. So it's, it's this little tiny city, which, which, of course, was where the Narnia Chronicles was based, the city. Oh, and okay. it just has churches and cathedrals and small little chapels and performance spaces all over the place so it's it's in umbria which is of course beautiful the rolling hills prosciutto and all the wonderful things that that narni can bring in that regard um but we're, we're really excited and as I, I i think i mentioned to you uh, earlier in a pre-interview today i was thinking and thought my gosh it's a completely female artistic staff now and I think I always wanted to be that way but after four years I finally have together now I also have to mention that that maestro Jason Tram is such a welcome brilliant sensitive wonderful um, collaborator with us and he conducted the operas this year so it's it's developed into quite a into quite a large festival and I'm very proud of of the work that we're doing Fantastic. Uh, uh, Esther had told me a little bit about the festival in the past, and it's great to hear uh, a little bit more detail about it. And uh, I definitely uh, need to put on my calendar to do some travel in July. Um, <laughs> We'd love to have too. you. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, Andrea, um, I'd like to have you touch a little bit uh, about your um, your collaborative uh organization, New York Opera Collaborative, and uh, I know you're one of the founders, and, and can you tell us how that came together? And, and Sure. You know, living... Yes, go ahead. Yes, excuse me. Uh, living in New York City and the, the environment of, um, of operatic, uh, let's just say opera as a chosen, my chosen sport, uh, it's, it's, you know, opera companies have been closing, and that's a well-known fact, and I felt in working with many, many directors and students and companies, that, that the idea of collaborating is just such an important basis. Um, being on the advisory board of the Dell'Arte uh, Opera Ensemble, and I just saw their productions like last week, they were absolutely exquisite. They did such a wonderful job with budget and all of the, the challenges that there is to, to keeping you know, opera alive in our society and, and financing these projects. I think we've 
we've all um, found the need at one time or another to collaborate with other organizations. So my idea was to bring this to a new level by focusing the collaborative on first and foremost bringing young artists together who had the need to learn roles in its in its most complete way with me technically vocally uh and now in the direction side jason tram as a conductor um and then my my other partner peter ransman of ransman artist management who has been in the business for over 30 years represents tremendous tremendous singers many at the metropolitan opera chicago lyric you know, a scholar, he works with, with, uh, with many major, major artists. And we thought it would be wonderful to bring the three of us together and offer during the rehearsal period also this type of coaching aspect to the young singers. We also are, are basing our initial sort of preview performances at the National Opera Center in New York City. And therefore, the singers get a chance to perform in a concert setting before they go off to do it staged. This way I can also help to promote smaller projects from other opera companies like Loft Opera, Bear Opera, Del Arte. These are all wonderful, wonderful smaller companies that have popped up around New York City, Heartbeat Opera, and they're getting wonderful reviews from the New York Times and et cetera, et cetera. So bringing all of these artists and you know creative teams together seem to be uh, something that, that, that would help, again, grow opera again from sort of the young, the younger singers up. I mean, as we say in, in society, we want, it's, we want our next generation to be bringing forward not only the art form, but also some of the traditions. And the traditions for me would be in the basis of learning from the grassroots, as opposed to, I have to say this, I probably sound old by saying this, but as opposed to the electronics the real live art form. And that's been a, a real focus of, of my work and uh, the direction in which New York Opera Collaborative is taking. That's fantastic. And, and uh, it's so good to hear that there is an effort out there to sort of, uh, quote unquote, save opera, because I had heard that as well over through the years uh, living here in New York City, that how um, the audiences and uh, uh you know, the audience going uh, was decreasing and uh, the houses closing. So it's so good to hear that there's this concerted effort to keep opera alive and the traditions, but also making it relevant to today and bringing in the, the new younger generations into mm -hmm. this fantastic uh, storytelling um, uh, realm. And uh, you mentioned, I think, in uh, some of your material talking about social consciousness and um, um, merging that with the older works and then bringing that to uh, today's mm -hmm. um, relevancy as well. So I yes, think we're and in, in, in the production of La Traviata in particular, I, I felt that uh, I, I, as, a, as a young girl growing up, I was very, very connected to Sylvia Plath and Sylvia Plath's work. Um, I also... I also read a book when I was probably eight years old or so called Gay Paris. It later became a film with um, Judy Garland and Robert Goulet. And it was, I, I can't believe it. It just, it just sort of came to me about two months ago that this was actually the story of La Traviata, the traditional story, and also the, the Lady of the Camellias, which was this um, cat, 
Violetta, of course, is the character, but this cat, Musette, who, <laughs> who was looking for a life and was ended up being found by what we would traditionally think of as uh, a call girl operation and trained to then become a, 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 uh, a bride to be purchased by this American, other American cat. And what's so ironic is that I, I used to have my mom read me this book every single day, every day. And I always wanted the story to end differently. And I think that's why I wanted it read to me every day. And even at that age, I, I knew there was something wrong with it. And I think as I got older into my teens and I was reading the Sylvia Plath work, I felt the same that this incredibly talented, vital woman who suffered from a mental illness, it, it was never really addressed or understood to the extent that who she was as, I mean, of course we know her now, but I think I, think I felt that in particular mental illness is such a misunderstood issue and oftentimes misdiagnosed and certainly has brought many, 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 um, many humans, but, but many women to the point of isolation. And in some cases, in the, in the case of schizophrenia, which was, is, is, is where I've decided to uh, bring our Violetta character to suicide. So I, I thought it was an important issue to then weave into a young girl having come to New York City to find her life and the challenges that, that she has in, in the ongoing battle with schizophrenia, delusions, um, and, and all of the other challenges that come up with shame and isolation that are commonly experienced by those with schizophrenia and other mental illnesses. Um, I don't I don't know if your audience is aware, but the statistics show that young adults between 18 and 22 are most commonly stricken with the delusions and depression that, that accompany schizophrenia. They could have it younger, but this is the age during college many times where it begins to escalate. Um, I also... I also fell upon a TED Talk with an incredible woman, uh, young woman who's who's tremendously successful at MIT, and the name of it is I'm Not a Monster, and she talks about what it means to be to be stricken with with schizophrenia and all of what happened to her. She she also of course tried to commit suicide a number of times, but she explains how she came out of that, and that being a woman in addition to having this illness, the first response that she had to herself was no no don't tell anybody because it'll be shameful and what will other people think so this interview was talking about the importance of her voice being heard and all all women and certainly women that are that are stricken with this illness to talk about what it means in their life and and reach out for the help that they need so i i thought that it's bringing the traviata story to uh, well, I can I can start to explain a little bit of my premise. Um, I start the entire opera with Violetta in uh, a, it's a two-storied set that I have, and the upper story is her room at Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital. And so, as we open the opera in the prelude, Violetta is looking down on her apartment, and then the other side is the Cafe Parigi, which is basically Bar Paris, and looking, and I think as the audience, 
beginning to, to, to wonder, did this ever happen? Did my life happen? How did it happen? Am I, am I where I am now or where has this led me? And the premise of my opera is to tell the story through her eyes from this perspective. So it's, it's challenging uh, in the sense that, of course, explaining how I'm going to theatrically with lighting and the music bring, bring this to life. Of course, <laughs> I'd love my audiences to come and see it for themselves. Absolutely. <laughs> they can't totally explain it all. But, um, Indeed, we want to uh, give a little taste so that we can get our audience out there. And um, Great. Uh, a quick question. Do you uh, uh, plan on videotaping this so that it can be seen by others yes. around the world? Yes. Luckily, the orchestra is not union, so we are allowed to videotape it, and we will be able to have that available you know, upon editing and so forth at some point, at least maybe through, you know, through the internet or a Facebook live or we're, we're still, we're still trying to uh, work out what, what will work out in that regard, but we absolutely want it recorded. It's such a new concept. And of course, for my own archival, you know, purposes, I would also like to have, like, I would also like to have it. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so good to hear. So our listeners out there, if you can't get here uh, to see the production, which is going to be coming up September 9th and September 10th in Deal, New Jersey. And we'll we'll recap that a little bit more at the end of the show. Uh, but would this be a, a good moment to, um, we would like to, to bring two uh, uh, clips of a couple of the pieces into the feature today. Um, would this maybe mm -hmm. be a good moment to bring one of those in and then we'll talk a little bit more about the production uh, in between. Absolutely. The, the uh, first the first clip that we chose is the very, very famous Libiamo, which is the toast of all the characters as they're celebrating life. And Violetta and Alfredo meet for the first time. This is actually in the traditional production in Paris, but in my production it's in Club Parigi. So it's, a, it's an underground club in New York City that uh, Violetta and her friends arrange parties in, and Alfredo comes in at that moment and so one of the first things that we see we, we see about Alfredo and Violetta together is them just toasting to life and being together with with all their friends the soprano Ashley Bell who will be in in our production as well is the soprano in this particular this particular clip
And that was the toast. Wonderful. Please tell us a little bit more about that uh, scene, Andrea. So the the, the toast is, is pretty traditional in terms of the way that I present it in the production. Um, however, we, we begin to see Violetta, the uh, the main character, she she starts to display some pieces, some parts of the break in the schizophrenia. However, we also understand that she she has this 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 inner strength, an inner strength even with the mental illness that's almost more together than the characters around her. Um, Alfredo and the father, I, I I have them as characters that are very wealthy, uh, very wealthy businessmen, and his son from Connecticut, and again the other aspects of of, of society that that does not necessarily bring them to an honest place. And as we go through the the, um, the production in the next clip that we're going to play, Violetta is in the club and Alfredo is in front of everyone decided to, to humiliate her. He's drunk. She's left him. But as the story unfolds, none of that was actually her doing. But instead of the story her letting him know she's kept it to herself so he throws money he calls her you know a prostitute and in this scene traditionally violetta really looks like the victim and she's on the floor and she's crying and people are taking care of her and in my production she has one line in the opera that says no matter what happens these men are never going to change so in this particular scene she actually she actually stands up, and instead of embracing Alfredo, she pushes him, as well as pushes the Baron and says, "Get out of my life! I don't need a man." And I think it's a it's a huge shift, it's a huge change in terms of, you know, regardless of the ending, uh, which obviously is not happy. It's it is La Traviata. <laughs> I really couldn't change that part, um, but we see this this inner strength of Violetta, and and I think. I think we need to talk more often about, again, we're not victims. It's not, it's not meant to be even called upon this art form as women as victims, but I think it's, it's, it's traditionally sort of directed that way. So this particular ensemble, again, features uh, Ashley Bell as Violetta, and, uh, and it's, it's spectacular music, but listen for all those high floating lines where she's declaring who she is and uh and you could hear her above the entire ensemble yes it's an um, incredible uh, stories to be uh listened to through this production and you mentioned um the um influence of sylvia plath to um this production and uh i understand you have a, a quote that um is pretty relevant that you'd like to share? I do. Yes, I do. And this quote, I decided to actually put it in the opera. And uh, Violetta in the hospital actually, um, she says this quote before the action starts um, in the club and in the apartment. We have a little longer version of it, but I'd like to just read a, a small part of the beginning. And again, this is told through the eyes of Violetta. I shut my eyes and all the world drops dead. I lift my lids, and all is born again. I think I made you up inside my head. Sylvia Plath. 
so it 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 very much uh, talks about the life that Sylvia herself, of course, lived in her head, and and Violetta is as well, um, and and speaks directly to the delusion. So I, I utilize quite often. In fact, Violetta in her hospital bed is holding a copy of the Bell Jar. Mm. So I I I feel that's a that's a beautiful way to to really bring us to where Violetta is. I've, I've told my actresses a, a number of times, I said, that book, The Bell Jar, is your teddy bear. That That is a sense of security for you. You're relating to this incredibly talented, wonderful woman, Sylvia Plath. And uh, and, and that you'll, we see that a number of times within the production itself as the story unfolds. Oh, incredible. It's, it's uh, very poignant and... Uh, um important part of this production I can tell and um, uh, the the comparison of uh, what you're doing with this version of La Traviata bringing the feminist sensibility uh, to the stage reinterpreting the the opera and uh, the parallels to hum to women's vulnerability in all societies around the mm -hmm. world you know our need for awareness and solidarity within our community uh, versus isolating yes. ourselves Mm -hmm. So uh, absolutely, you know, one one of my favorite, one of my favorite researcher writers is Brene Brown. I just I love her, and whenever I myself am feeling like oh I need a friend or I need you know I I just turn on one of her podcasts and listen or I read from you know Daring Greatly and I and I I gain myself as a woman just so much hope and strength and and resilience in hearing the voices of other women, as you say, and being part of the community as opposed to isolating. And I think that that's much, uh, very much a, a huge part of what I'm trying to, to bring out in this production. Well, bravo. And uh, I would love to hear this uh, s uh, second clip that we have for today's show. Um, if you could lead us into that. Yes, yeah, so it is the Act Two party, and uh, I'm I'm actually doing La Traviata in two acts instead of three. It's just the way that I've I, I'm I'm sort of combining the um, the story. And in Act Two, this is the the party where Alfredo comes in drunk in my production and humiliates Violetta, and she, through her tremendous strength and resilience, stands up to him in this absolutely fantastic ensemble with Ashley Bell as Violetta.
this um, incredible piece to hear the famous finale in the La Traviata. So Andrea, please tell us uh, um, a little bit more uh, how that transitions into the rest of the opera. Yes, you know, I, I, I really do want to mention that there's no director on earth that does not fully need and appreciate and welcome an incredible assistant director. And I, I have a wonderful assistant director by the name of Thomas Netter. He's a student, actually, at the Neighborhood Playhouse Theater, and he's been so essential in working with all of the singers as actors, as opposed to just opera singers who stand and sing and don't act. And the process of, of bringing these characters who I've completely changed. I mean, I would, I would tell you that the characters are, again, updated New York friends or new people that they're meeting. And, uh, and, I've, and I've challenged many singers' idea of the character. For instance, the, the character of uh, Germont, the, the father of Alfredo, it, traditionally in the production, of course, he's, he's very uh, hard on Violetta and he asks her to leave Alfredo because she's going to make a bad name for the family because she's not a woman of, of respect. And in this production, as it moves on, when he finds out that she's ill, he becomes, you know, sorry and so forth. Well, I just said, he's not, he's not sorry. And I said to Jonathan, I said, I, I believe that he is narcissistic and has the intention for only what he wants just to protect the reputation of what he thinks his family needs. So I've asked Jonathan and I challenged him to, to bring this character to a place that he doesn't get to be off the hook for what he did. And it's been wonderful to watch that, you know, uh, Jonathan went that far and has brought this character to a whole new level for himself. Um, I, it warms my heart when I hear the singers come and say, we're so, I'm so grateful to be part of this production. It's, it's, it's really made me dig inside to understand what I do and I don't know about myself or how I feel about this or who is Violetta, um, you know, does she, why does she fight back? So it's, it's been exciting for myself and uh, Thomas uh, Netter to, to challenge, the, challenge the singers and the actors through the whole process. And I'm, I'm, I'm feeling great about the result and I'm just I'm sort of chomping at the bit to hear the audience's response, obviously. <laughs> Indeed, I, I imagine you are, and uh, I look forward to being a part of that uh, experience and, and feedback. And it's it's wonderful here to hear um, that you are working with extraordinary practitioners and th that value the perspective women uh, bring to the directorial directorial mm -hmm. lens that you're that you're doing. And uh, yes, it's it must be a tremendous uh, experience to see how. Um, these uh, young practitioners uh, sort of evolve and and, and uh, think of things differently. And well, I, I always, obviously, too. I've been I've been where they are. I've been on the stage all my life. So to come from the other direction and respectfully hear how they feel about something or what what their perspective is, and then develop it together has been so rewarding on both sides. That's great. And uh, you know, International Women Artists Salon is. Uh, all about uh, bringing uh, people together to help raise up women's voices in the creative realm. And so it's wonderful to uh, hear of the work that you're doing and uh, look forward to doing much more with you in the future and and following along um, uh, your work as a director 
mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and and getting your your feedback as to how that um, you know the roles of ter- a director, a woman director uh, in opera world is uh, evolving. Well, I'm I'm so thrilled to to know about this organization, and you will be hearing a lot from me because I plan to um, enthusiastically come on board. And as I say, my next generation, my daughter at Northwestern, I've got a lot of young women who are very very excited to 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 work and again collaborate with the salon. Fantastic! I cannot wait. And now I want to uh, make sure that we get all the information out to our listeners. Uh, how we can uh, connect with you and follow you ongoing and uh, uh, give us the details of the performances coming up. So um, the New York Opera Collaborative only has a Facebook page. We don't have a website yet. So the Facebook access to New York Opera Collaborative, of course, is the best way. We do have uh, information regarding the production on September 9th and 10th at the Axelrod Theater. Uh, I want to also thank uh, Andrew DePresco, who's been producing the opera and so, so excited about uh, the concept and very supportive of everything that we're doing. Um, and then we'll have other projects throughout, scattered throughout the year. There'll be a Macbeth at the end of September. We're planning our spring production now. And then I'll have the Narni production announced sometime in the next two or three months. So that Facebook page is probably the best place to check. Uh, in terms of reaching me, the, um, I do have a website, uh, www.andreadeljudice.com. It's just my name, which gives a little bit more information about me, where I've come from, and what my other what other parts of my life are after uh, after directing. Um, and I think there's a way to contact me through the collaborative, but of course my direct contact information is also on my website. Great, and we will make sure that we have all of these links up on our. Wonderful podcast which is on Podbean, and also Great. on our international women artists salon fan page and uh be giving you shout outs through our other social media and That's our blog great. spot and uh andrea del judice it's been wonderful to have you on salon radio today and to learn about this amazing reinvented uh, production of la traviata thank you so much heidi what a pleasure it's been to speak with you today And it's been our pleasure and honor, and uh, we'll look forward to uh, seeing you um, in a week or so and hopefully having you back on Salon Radio in the future to uh, learn more. I would love to. Ongoing projects. Great. I would love to. So break a leg. Okay. Thank you so much. Do you say break a leg in the opera world? Oh, we sure do. All right. We sure do. (laughs) Great. Break a leg (laughs) to all. Take care. And today's sponsor spot is featuring Funkadelic Studios. As I mentioned earlier in the show, we are now recording our podcast at Funkadelic Studios, and I'm going to let Maureen tell us more about this great organization. Funkadelic Studios runs on a simple philosophy. The musicians are the priority. Funkadelic Studios has provided musicians an affordable home to rehearse, record, and reinvent their music for over 20 years. Two musician friends in Brooklyn started the studio as a way to connect with the NYC music scene and provide a place where musicians can do what they do best, make music. No matter how rich, poor, established, or underground an artist might be, Funkadelic provides all the services musicians need under one roof. The six R's are essential for any artist, and Funkadelic has them all covered. Rehearsal rooms, recording studio, repair shop, rentals, retail shop, and a rock and roll club. Beyond rehearsal and recording, 
Funkadelic provides other great outlets for artists to showcase their work. Open mic nights, open jams, event showcases, EP album release parties, and talent competitions are only a few of an extensive list of services we provide musicians to help network and promote their art. Funkadelic takes the extra step to help the music community keep in contact with their fans, other musicians, and industry professionals. Funkadelic Studios understands that music isn't just about a group of songs or compositions. It is about people, people who write the music, people who help with the technical aspects, and people who listen to it. Uh, for a full list of services, you can, uh, you can visit their website at funkadelicstudios.com. Thank you, Maureen. And uh, now we're going to uh, have our section of Salon Bulletin, which um, will let you know, our listeners, what is happening by Salonistas, our members around the world, upcoming this week. So I'm going to bounce it right back to you, Maureen. Hey, Salonistas. Maureen here again, bringing you the Salon Bulletin of upcoming events. We have Twisted Lipstick Comedy, featuring the funniest all-female lineup of diverse stand-up comics nationwide and beyond. Um, this show is going to be hosted by Salonista Mutia Vision, featuring Allie Lethbridge, Whitney Channel Clark, Lois Thompson, Janelle Jackson, Catherine Cipher. They have happy hour first. That starts at 6. The doors open at 7. Showtime is at 8 o'clock. That is at Sir D's Lounge, 837 Union Street in Brooklyn. And you can get your tickets on Eventbrite. It's $10. Twisted-lipstick-comedy-ticket. Take the two or three train to Grand Army Plaza. That's every second Friday of the month, so their next show is going to be Friday, September 8th. We also have More Artivism by Salonista Paula Billups. In response to the racist violence in Charlottesville, beginning August 13th, Paula started a 30-day series of small works, making one a day and listing it on her Etsy page. Works are priced between $10 and $100, and the total sale price of all works sold from the Art for Charlottesville series will be donated to the Southern Poverty Law Center in a lump sum on September 14th. As Paula says, buy art, fight Nazis, win-win. That's at Paula Billups Art, P-A-U-L-A-B-I-L-L-U-P-S-A-R-T, and that's on Etsy.com. We also have a part of IRT's 3B development series coming up, and this is a show written and directed by our own Salonista, Ranja, and it is called Pomegranate, and the story revolves around Persephone. She gets snatched to the underworld, but the place isn't really what she expected. Hades has his own problems to deal with as well, especially when the memory archive is at capacity with the refugees pouring into the world of the dead. It's featuring Zoe Ibuyuan, Diane Chen, Jess Davis, Marcellus Galanis, Sean Henkel, Finn Kilgore, Lizzie Anna Lincoln, Andrea Negrete, Yara Sigsford, and Sarah Gwyn Walker and Marie Zumanigui. Uh, associate Director is Julia Levine. Assistant Directors Jake Beckhardt and Charlotte Arnoux. Music by Emily Krauss. Fight Choreography by Madeline Emmerich and the Dispatch Combat Collective. Set design by Julie A. Solomon. Lighting design by Elizabeth M. Stewart. That is a show filled with women artists. Pama Grenade performs on Wednesday 9-13 at 8, Friday the 15th at 8, Saturday the 16th at 8. 
which is their official opening. It will also be on Sunday the 17th at 2, Wednesday the 20th at 8, Friday the 22nd, 8, Saturday the 23rd at 2, Sunday the 24th at 7. And you can find them on brownpapertickets.com slash events slash 2987297. Ran Xia is an interdisciplinary dramatist and co-founder of the Artic Group. IRT Theater is a grassroots laboratory for independent theater and performance in New York City, providing space and support to new generation of artists. They are in the old archive building in Greenwich Village at 154 Christopher Street. So if you have a chance, get on out there and see Pomegranade. That's it for our Salon Bulletin. Thank you, Maureen. And again, as you can hear, there's amazing creative work being done by Salonistas around the world, all our current members. And if you're interested in joining us, uh, a woman creative of any age, any discipline, anywhere around the world, please contact us at womenartsalon at gmail.com or on our social media outlets. And uh, now I'm going to uh, introduce Jenny Green, who is a, an amazing artist, actor in her own right, and she's going to be presenting today's uh, second guest, Jocelyn Arem. And welcome to our second fabulous feature in Salon Radio's double feature, Extravaganza, this week. And we have the wonderful Jocelyn Arem, who is a Grammy-nominated artist and uh, has a gig coming up and a new album to launch the album. So I'm just going to try and read a little bit from uh, Joss's bio. Uh, she actually performs as Rabasi Joss. She'll correct my pronunciation in a minute if I've, if I've damaged that in any way. And she's a Brooklyn-based soul jazz folk singer-songwriter inspired by working with... Uh, award-winning multimedia documentary music projects and crossing paths with such legends as Pete Seeger, Tim Robbins, Jane Fonda and Dr. Bernice Johnson. And now you're returning to the stage and studio before as a performing and recording artist. Yeah. Thanks for Keep having me. Up. Yeah, no, welcome to the studio. Welcome to Brick as well. This is our yes. first recording in the Brick studio. Love being here, so, Brick. Yeah, so I'd like to give yeah. a big thank you to Joss and our other featured guest today, Grace, for bearing with me with my technical travails, <laughs> fiddling around with knobs all morning. Which the is creative some, process. Some ways it's a dream, <laughs> dream way of spending a post Labor Day Tuesday. Anyway, yeah, so Joss, tell us how you got started with the whole singing business then. How I got started with the whole singing business, it, it feels like I just always had been in the business, you know, of singing. It was always there. I'm sure Grace feels the same way when you're a singer. It's just sort of exists yeah. in you. And I remember singing from when I was very, very, very small, you know, on the playground, in the cradle, and all those stories about me singing from a very young age. And then as I grew up, I just continued to participate in any thing musical that I could, whether it was musical theater in yeah. high school. Grace and I both have that background to then in college starting to perform my own music and write my own music and then perform out in coffee houses and clubs. So it's just an evolution. Cool. And do you come from a musical family? I do, actually. I, my great-grandmother was an opera singer, 
And uh, I have cousins who were in a punk band in the 80s in San Francisco. So the music is all kind of in there. And uh, I have younger cousins now who are in their own punk bands. My cousin uh, Nina is in a band called Palberta that Ooh. was just featured in Rolling Stones. So I'm very proud of her. So it's all in yeah. the fam. Yeah. Cool. I was always quite scared of punks when I was growing up. First time around. <laughs> <I don't know>. <laughs> <laughs> Tough on the outside, it can be the nicest people. Uh, you know. The music is awesome. Yeah. Dig the music, that's for sure. Yeah. So, um, so you started off just singing, singing at school and mm-hmm. singing choirs and singing musical theatre. Yep. And then, when did you decide to pick up an instrument? You know, I I picked up the guitar when I was probably 16, 17, because I started to realize that um, I was playing the piano, but pianos were not as mobile. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, you needed to be able to sing in different locations and sing out, and I didn't want to have to rely on such a large instrument. So the guitar was the next most best portable thing that could have the same kind of uh, uh, stylings and um, an accompaniment that I was looking for, so I picked up the guitar. And was it learning. always acoustic guitar? Always acoustic. There was a little point in there where I had like a real cool red cherry red electric, but uh, and that was fun for blues and stuff. But it didn't didn't last too long. I like like the funky old school, you know, acoustic real like raw sounds. Like, yeah. Yeah. Did you ever think about the banjo? I don't think I've ever played the banjo. I never really. I lived in North Carolina for seven years, so I had plenty of experience yeah. with the banjo. <laughs> the banjo <laughs> never really crossed my mind to actually think yeah, I could I'm play sick it. Of banjo. <laughs> my hand doesn't do that claw that claw thing, you know. <laughs> Yeah, no, just no. the guitar and Ooh. and mainly vocal, mainly a vocalist, you know. Yeah. And who was your most influential guitar teacher? Uh, I had a guitar teacher in college named Chuck Deloya, who was uh, who is an amazing blues guitarist, and that style always like really resonated with me. I love the the blues and. He uh, was probably fed up with me a lot because I didn't always practice the way I should and um, kind of been renegade like that and not always the most disciplined. But um, one thing he did teach me was the beginning of summertime, and that actually led to me writing the song Flowers and Salt that we're going to be playing at the show on Saturday. And um, so it was just like learning that original riff of of, uh, summertime and then literally not remembering the rest of it or not being disciplined (laughs) enough to recall the rest of it in a lesson. And I just decided decided to write my own my own song so yeah that's the positive positive thing of being delinquent is sometimes yeah. it leads to creativity turn, yeah. turn it into something new absolutely yeah. and did you have an influential singing teacher as well I had uh, musical theater teachers and all through high school were great and um you know but my musical teachers were mainly like musicians that I listened to on on albums and the radio and um friends you know being influenced by people that I sang with I'd listened to a lot of Mariah Carey a lot of Whitney Houston. I'm a child of the 90s, you know, so that was always there. And all that um, belting. All that belting and, you know, pop, you know, it was what was on the radio. But then I loved Bonnie Raitt. I loved Bonnie Raitt's old records, you know, listening to her um, sing. And um, and then all musical theater, you know, like uh, Patti LuPone, Bernadette Peters, we were just talking about, oh, you know. Peters, uh, There's just fantastic. something about that kind of style of singing that's, uh, yeah. Yeah, awesome. And do you remember your first gig? Yes, my first professional gig was on the stage of a small music venue called Cafe Lena, uh, which started me on a 10-year journey to document the venue itself, but I didn't know that at the time. I was actually playing an open mic night there when I was 18, and uh, I played my couple songs that I had been writing like in my college dorm room. I sat down, and the manager came over and said, I'd like to speak to you in my office. And I have a history of 
being in school and being asked to come to the office, and it's never <laughs> really been a good thing. So I just assumed I was getting kicked out for something that I did, and she offered me my very first gig. Awesome. That's actually an interesting story, isn't it, about the Cafe Lena? Could you tell us about what happened there? Yeah, so after that uh, encounter, and I realized that I was not in trouble, and I was actually being offered my very first <laughs> professional performance ever at age 18, um, I started performing regularly there at this tiny little coffeehouse venue that actually had an incredible history that I wasn't quite aware of at the time, but learned later that um, performers like uh, uh, Pete Seeger and Bob Dylan and Ani DeFranco and Rufus Wainwright and just these great Don McLean, these great songwriters in our um, cultural history had performed on that stage. And it was like hallowed ground for musicians for many, many years. And I looked around and I said, had anyone I asked, had anyone recorded the story of this place? And no one had. And I asked, could I do that? And I began this documentary project where I started interviewing musicians, interviewed 150 musicians around the country about their experiences performing there. I got to track down people like Rufus Wainwright and Tim Robbins and speak to them firsthand about their experiences and covered 4,000 images of performers playing there and um, about 400 shows, recorded shows that no one had ever heard and created a book project um, that was published by Powerhouse Books a couple of years ago with an accompanying CD, three CD box set of all of those curated performances from the 1960s to today. And uh, as well as a website, a digital database, it won the ASCAP Deems Taylor Award in 2012 for multimedia, and the entire archive then went to be at the Library of Congress. So from that one gig, it led to (laughs) this extraordinary experience. I got to sit at the feet of some of my favorite artists and just learn about their history as musicians. Cool. And how long did that take, that process? That entire project took about 12 years, and I was in school for a lot of it, so I was sort of uh, using that experience to uh, understand better what I was learning in school. I was studying ethnomusicology. It was my undergraduate degree. I created a self-determined major. And from there went on to do my master's in folklore and cultural studies. And all along the way, I was using this place as like a case study to better understand the real-life stories of uh, social activists and musicians and people who had really shaped the cultural uh, musical identity of our country's history in so many ways, had a formative space on this particular stage. That's amazing. Did you ever think that you would perhaps not get to the end of that project? (laughs) There were many, many times that I thought, is this (laughs) ever going to end? But um, I I felt um, a loyalty to to seeing it through because so many people had shared their stories with me at that point. And a lot of the people I interviewed had passed away. And that's heavy, you know, when you realize that you're carrying stories for people who um, uh, then, you know, trust you that they're going to With see. With their legacy. Exactly. Yeah. They want to make sure that you're going to carry that forward. So I really felt indebted to them. And um, it was a really special thing when we finally published the book and we had a celebration at Powerhouse uh, Arena, which used to be in Dumbo, with a bunch of the musicians who had, I had interviewed performing. Uh, it was like coming full circle. And then uh, Grace was with me when we recorded this uh, record and performed it on the uh, stage of the cafe, this most recent like, record. So that was like coming home for me. That was yeah. like really the the final chapter of that project was to get to perform my r- recent record on the stage. That's amazing. It must have been like unpeeling an onion. <laughs> so you probably or something, something where you think something is quite small and then suddenly the more you go into it, the more you realise yeah. how huge and vast it is. Yeah, absolutely. And then also the technology was evolving a lot as you were going through it. How did that work out? Yeah, it's interesting you should say that because I look back at pictures now when I first interviewed people and I had a little 
uh, cassette interview recorder, you know, like I was using cassette tapes and then eventually I transitioned to using digital, but I still have all those old cassettes that I did my very first interviews on. And then the kind of media that we uncovered from the recorded history of the cafe was everything from um, reel to reel tape to cassettes to digital. So it like Steve Rosenthal, who owned the Magic Shop Studio, helped me digitize all of this uh, recorded material. He used to say it was like uh, a history of the recorded uh, tape of, you know, because we were recorded uncover- sound, recorded yeah. sound. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Because I, mean, I guess when you started, you wouldn't really have known where it was going to end up. You just had, you just wanted to document this history. Yeah. And then the means of actually doing that evolved, and then the final products were were probably not what you thought they were going to be when you started. So yeah, I, I didn't I knew I wanted to do a book because the founder had wanted to, to see a book of, of all the stories. And then the music came later, um, the recorded music came later. But no, for me, it was always like a window into the world of music. And it was a way to experience firsthand storytelling um, in a way that I knew I couldn't just by going to school. Um, I'm sure Grace feels the same way. Like yeah. when you're performing and we're out in the world, you learn so much more than sometimes you do in the classroom. It's all valuable, but that real life experience is huge. Yeah. So it taught me a lot about what, the kind of artist that I wanted to be and the kind of music that I wanted to make just from listening, just yeah. from listening to the stories. And you could probably make a lot of money now by redoing all those tapes. Redoing? The t- well, if you actually issue the tapes. Cause they're Remastering kind of, them. Uh, yeah, because hipsters like uh, old-fashioned audio. <laughs> oh, those hipsters. And it's their all about cassettes. money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Analog is always, always coming back, That's always true. making That's a return. True. Um, so can you share any of those stories with us? Any of the stories from that project? Yeah. Oh, gosh, there's so many. Well, who, I mean, who, who, who kind of struck you as particularly amazing? I mean, it sounds like you met some fabulous people. I can't imagine any of them were disappointing, but oh. which, which memories live with you today? Oh, my goodness. It's going to take me a minute to think <laughs> about, re- retrack all of those people I sat down with. Um, well, who, who were you mm-hmm. especially honoured to meet? Who was your kind of biggest heroine or mm. hero, anyway. you know I uh, I tried to be as you know I'm not just tried but I I, I, knew, I knew I needed to be as professional as possible when I met with these artists and I had to put on my documentarian uh, hat to be um, uh, you know as professional as possible but there were some musicians that I remember wanting to tell them how much their music meant to me and right. knowing that I needed to be careful about not geeking out you know as a music fan and still being professional but um, one of those artists was uh, Greg Brown who I'm a huge fan of He's just an incredible songwriter I'd listened to his music a lot and uh, we just did a phone interview, and he was very, very nice to me at the end of the, uh, the interview. And I, I, I said in my most professional manner, uh, Mr. Brown, <laughs> Greg, <laughs> I just want to tell you how much I love your music. And um, he was very, very, very gracious. And Ani DeFranco was another one of those who I actually got to sit down with and talk to in person. And um, was very, very sweet to me. So funny. I didn't realize how funny she would be in person. And um, she was very, very kind. And then Pete Seeker, you know, to sit down with him uh, in his home uh, just a few years before he died and his wife Toshi was still alive at that point brought us tea and I speaking of banjos you know he's very famous for playing his banjo Um, uh, you know and we were sitting in his living room and uh, just talking just talking about you know his life and the cafe and everything and just and 
I was, it was such an honor just to be sitting in his presence. It's like he could have said anything, you know, but um, he was um, just so wise. And I remember this huge window behind him and uh, it was wintertime and there were trees like evergreen trees that were covered with snow. And he was wearing a little strawberry hat, like a knit strawberry hat. Mm-hmm. It was really sweet. And, um, and then at one point he was telling the story and it just like naturally evolved into and I'm going to take down my banjo and start to play a song. And we, like, sat there with our mouths open, like, is this really happening? He's actually playing playing wow. for us. And it was just it was very natural, you know, people just exploring and evolving with their music. And it was just an, an easy afternoon. It was just very, very sweet. Yeah, sounds wonderful. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, yeah, after that, you must have been filled with inspiration to create your own work. Um, and you have a new album coming out is this a is this a it's not a debut album is it uh it's a debut album for Rabasi Joss Rabasi Joss is my new stage name and uh, I had recorded some uh, earlier music but this is really the first big project and it was produced by Baba Israel uh who has a band called Soul Inscribed that Grace Gallo to my left is now a, a new a new part of and um uh, Baba and I actually first met at Cafe Lena he and uh, his wife were doing a summer poetry workshop and we connected um he's someone who's you know really interested in music tradition as am i and uh we were interested in exploring you know the history of music that had come before us in order to make our music deeper and better and i asked him to produce this record it's called heliotrope and uh we just came out with it uh in may awesome well i'm very excited that we're going to be hearing a track from it shortly um but before we do Let's talk to Grace. Hello. Hello, Grace. (laughs) So let me just read a little bit from your bio down here as well. Grace Gallew. So you are a vocalist, guitarist and composer who combines the sounds of your Irish and Congolese heritage with a soulful and gritty twist. Yes. And she's also an excellent ad hoc engineer Mm -hmm. as well. Um, (laughs) And you have, uh, yeah, you've used your background and your New York City upbringing to... uh, to forge a wide range of musical ability. And you were also into musical theatre. Yes. And, uh, and you went to Tadar. I did I go to Tadar. Yeah, that's so much fun. <laughs> I know a few people have done that. That's yeah, cool. I went there as a child, and it was really just such a wonderful experience. I gained a lot of poise. Um, and I it was one. I can see that. I can see oh, you can balance you. a lot of books on your head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, posture is really important in my family. Um, but yes, Tada was where I first started performing um, and understanding all the mechanisms behind theater. So not just about being in the forefront, but also about understanding how to support a cast and learning what a director does and what a stage manager does and what a composer does. So it was a fantastic place for a child. Yeah. I didn't realize how long, I mean, I'm not saying that you're old, but I didn't realize that... Um, it's been around as I long know, as it has. I believe it started in the late 70s. Wow. Um, yeah, but by the time I had started there, it had been around for a while. Um, and, you know, I'm 30 now. So, yeah, it's been, it's been around quite a while. Cool. Um, and they're still going. Yeah. So you really started um, in the musical theater tradition. Yes. I, I went to a Catholic school that put on these fantastic musicals where pretty much everyone in the school was involved. And Baruch Theater got interested in in our musicals because they were so huge, and they started letting us do um, our musicals in their auditorium. So from a really young age, I was performing on, you know, a huge stage, um, perf- like college-level type performances. Yeah. So I was blessed in that sense. What was your favorite part? Oh, I played the Mother Abbess in The Sound of Music. Amazing! (laughs) (laughs) 
What was your best song in that? I don't well, know. Oh, that's Climb awesome. Every Mountain, oh, of course. Oh, yeah. Man. I actually I did a cover of it recently after this election I needed to uh, console yeah. myself <laughs> yeah. that's amazing so I did it and I actually you know I felt uh, I felt like I was singing to my younger self mm, that's <laughs> yeah. or maybe my younger self was singing to me I'm not sure mm-hmm. yeah it's all come around somewhere yeah cool. it's come full circle but um I, as Joss said, joined this band, Soul Inscribed, recently, and I'd been, you know, rubbing elbows with these guys for a long time in the poetry and performance scene and, you know, the open mic and underground scene, Um, but recently they were looking for a vocalist to work on another project, a play, and uh, and through that I met Baba, and through Baba I met Verbasi Joss. Ah, so it's quite a recent acquaintance. Yeah, mm-hmm. we've we've been uh, yeah. together for about six months. Together. <laughs> it's together a new partnership. <laughs> quite flirtatious. <laughs> it feels longer than that. It's crazy. Yeah, like twin souls. <laughs> when you find, you know, when you've been around and you're experiencing enough stuff, when you find the right mm-hmm. things, yes. and you know what, you know, yeah. magic's gonna happen. Yeah. So I was able to go to. Um, to Cafe Lina with, with uh, Joss mm-hmm. this spring. So I was able to yeah. experience some of the history that she was you know, speaking of, and then I was mm-hmm. able to perform with her at her album release party in May mm-hmm. at BAM yeah. across the street. Yeah. Yeah, and that was that yeah. was fantastic. Yeah. Oh, we come back home again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Always back. returning home to Brooklyn. Yeah, That's right. yeah. No sleep till Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah right. That's awesome. <laughs> and you're from, are you from, did you grow up in Brooklyn? I, I actually grew up in Manhattan. Uh-huh. Uh, my mother's from Brooklyn. My grandmother's from Brooklyn. Uh, my great-grandmother's from Brooklyn um, and in the mm. Park Slope area. But I grew up in Manhattan, and I've lived in every borough except for Staten Island, knock on wood. <laughs> is that to, is that to go or to not go? That's to, That's not, to go. not go. <laughs> I hope I get there. I we do apologize for Staten Island. You know what? It's not their fault. I forgive them. <laughs> oh, That's hilarious. Some kind of heritage there. Um, so, you, so we talked there a little bit about your um, drawing from your Irish and Congolese heritage. Yes. Um, how does that kind of play? play into the musician that you are today? Well, they both have such a rich musical folk lore and just um, such a strong identity. And bizarrely, because they're such different cultures, there's so many similarities. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, my dad loves listening to Celtic like beautiful, eerie, harmonic songs. And my mom was the one buying us Zap Mama and, you know, all the Congolese (laughs) songs. And the immersion of the two, I really feel like, is a unique thing that I've honed in on. Um, A combination of rhythm, um, syncopation, and then just like these like haunting harmonies. Mm. So um, I really feel lucky that I have that that background and then everything in between. And my parents are eclectic music listeners and you know, definitely exposed me at a young age to a quality of, of music. Yeah, they're, they're both fantastic traditions. I don't know very much about Congolese dance, but are you a fan of Irish step dancing? I am. I am a fan of <laughs> Irish step dancing. And it's funny because there that's where the differences lie. Irish um, step dancing is very much from below the waist, mm. and Congolese dancing is all about the waist. Mm. You're just You're just moving your waist. And there's this saying, you know, that... People in Northern Africa dance with their shoulders. And in Central Africa, you dance with your hips. And in Southern Africa, you dance with your legs. So the the Congo is right in the Central Africa, and it's all about the hips. Male, female, child, (laughs) grandmother. you got to shake that. All all the hips. So you've got to move those hips. Yeah. Yeah. 
And, and will we see any dance when you perform? Absolutely, I can't help it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and you're doing some percussion as well, I see. Yes, I am. Mm -hmm. um, my husband and I, uh, my husband's a percussionist, um, but we were doing classes with children, so we have collected all of these hand percussion, um, you know, just for the fun of being able to participate um, in a group sing-along. And because of the environment um, on Saturday is going to be quite intimate and mm -hmm. kind of like a, a group setting, mm -hmm. I, I thought it'd be nice to bring some some hand percussion along to set that environment. Yeah. <laughs> the So Far show that we're doing is all acoustic. All acoustic. On Saturday. Beautiful. Yeah. So tell us about the ones you brought with you today. Well, these are gourds that are actually Those filled with dried balls. seeds. Yeah, my fancy balls. <laughs> <laughs> and this is somewhat of a rainmaker. You know, it has a it has a slide to it. It's you know mm -hmm. has a has a higher pitch, mm -hmm. and it, it you know has a bit more of a shake to it. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> and together they create a good look. <laughs> they do. <laughs> I can see some symbolism there. <laughs> <laughs> if you can imagine that, Cool. Okay. Well, maybe we should listen to the song. Mm -hmm. do you okay. listen, should we should we talk about it after you sing it, or do you want to talk about it before you sing it? Uh, I'll just introduce it uh, okay. quickly and then you can ask us questions about it afterwards. It's called Heliotrope. It is the title track of the record. Heliotrope. <clears throat> Would you write it on your head to remember us? 
us this way, oh babe I am so sorry for the way that I behave But when I love you, I promise to do it Delicately, and you hear the trumpets to me Hear the trumpets to me Joss, that you do mm-hmm. have a, a thing about words as well. Mm. So uh, for those of us that don't know what a heliotrope is, mm. what is that? Heliotrope is what plants do when they're reaching for the light. And this is something that my mom taught me, and she has a real green thumb and has always grown a lot of plants. And um, she always used to say that when you're growing plants, you should keep turning the pot so that the plant continued to grow along towards the light. And I just became fascinated with this topic. I just thought it was the most beautiful metaphor for the way that people are driven to um, pursue their creativity, especially artists. And it was at a time when I was really trying to regain my own um, connection to myself as a creative artist. I had been doing this documentary work for Cafe Lena and then for the Errol Garner Jazz Project over the last um, like 15 years. You know, I gave so much of my life uh, to storytelling for other artists. And um, I sort of at a certain point found that I was losing my own creativity, my own personal uh, artistic creativity in that, you know, my connection to my own music. And um, I I found that I needed to come back to some kind of balance balance between my own work and the work that I was um, creating for other people and uh, it felt really good to return to that and discover what that was all about so heliotrope is is really that idea of connectivity to the light that inspires us that's the title track of the album that's the title track of yeah, the record it's very yeah. Useful. yeah and we actually had a guest pianist uh, the late Jerry Allen uh, play on that track so it's it's really special now for me to hear that back because we lost Jerry uh, this last year so um, it's it's been really an, an emotional uh, journey to have played with this amazing uh, artist and then um, to you know realize that they, they won't, may not be around forever. So again, it's like this, similar to the documentary work that I did, just really appreciating the creative artists that we surround ourselves with every day. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Um, so we only have a couple of minutes left, I think. It's been wonderful to have you on. I also yeah. wanted to ask you what the Rabassi bit of Rabassi jobs. Sure. Rabassi is, uh, comes from a childhood nickname. Uh, my middle name is Rose, so when I was a kid, it was Rabassi, uh, like Jocko Rabassi, Jocelyn Rose, and I decided to keep the Joss because a lot of my friends know me as Joss, and then I decided to make the Rabassi the first part of that, and uh, I really dig it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. It's very intriguing. <laughs> and then, you, and then your, whole, um, your whole thing with Cafe Lena and mm. El Garner has um, evolved into a, a business, which is mm-hmm. how we first met, the Creative yeah. Entrepreneurs Project that That's the right. Fund, which is awesome. Yeah. And that has a fantastic name as well, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah, yeah, no, I, li- I like to, I like uh, words, you know, and like making up words and thinking about the origin of words. And Arbo Radico, the name of my company, comes from... Uh, tree root. Arbo is tree and radico is root. I like the, uh, the in Esperanto, kind of, right? In Esperanto, which is like a, it's, you know, meant to be a universal language. It's all, I was just doing research about like this, this linguistic history and I yeah. found that I really loved all the, the meanings of those uh, the words together and I love the connotation of uh, radico and radical 
you know, this kind of idea that like by revisiting history, it's like a radical act and we're always transforming history, making it new. So I love that for Root. And um, Arbor Radico is a company that reimagines archival content and transforms it into modern day projects, right, to highlight the history of the arts, creative arts. Yeah, yeah. wonderful. Thank you. Um, so tell us how we can find out more about your gig on Saturday. So you can actually go to my website, Rabasi Joss, R-A-B-A-S-I-J-O-S-S, and all the information about the SoFar Sounds gig is on there. You can also go to the SoFar website. I believe it's SoFarSounds.com <laughs> or yes. Google SoFar. And then if you go to um, the September 9th Chinatown location, uh, it's a secret showcase, so we don't uh, can we we cannot say the exact location. You'll get emailed that the day before, but if you sign up, then you'll find out how to do all of that. Yes. Very exciting. <laughs> Secret makes it better. Right? Yeah. yeah. Right. Oh, nice. Yes. Hush, hush. Yeah. You heard from here first. Well, I think that's all we've got time for. Thank okay. you so much. We'll also have all of those details on the Women Artists Salon website as well, so you can find out more then. So thank you very much, thank you. Joss, and thank you very much, Grace. Thank it's been you. Great having you on board. Thanks and, for having me. Uh, yeah, check out Heliotrope. And is it available yeah. on iTunes to download? It's available on all of the digital platforms. And, well, is it we available on an analog tape, perhaps? We have <laughs> <laughs> not analog, not cassette for you hipsters. You're going to have to get creative with that. But we have uh, CDs available on Saturday. And I have tote bags that are called Heliototes. Oh! oh <laughs> that are pretty snazzy. you got to come get a Heliotote. So, yeah, you can purchase those uh, on Bandcamp and at, at the gig on Saturday. Awesome. Thank you both yeah. very much. Thank you. Thank you. I've been Jenny Green, and this is Salon Radio. Goodbye. Thank you, Jenny, for bringing Jocelyn to Salon Radio today. Thank you, Jocelyn. It's great to hear about your work. And thank you again to Andrea Del Judice who is director of La Traviata and founder, artistic director of New York Opera Collaborative uh, earlier on in our show. And uh, we look forward to following both of their careers. And now uh, we'd like to say thank you for listening to us today and being a fan of Salon Radio and following and supporting women's artistry around the world. Again, you can follow us on International Women Artists Salon Facebook page, also our YouTube channel, and uh, our shorter Twitter and Instagram at Women Art Salon. So we look forward to uh, having you follow us, sending us a message, and being engaged for raising up women's artistry around the world. Thank you, and see you next week. <laughs>